0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter three. We're going to look at the fifth church and the seven letters uh, to the seven churches. Um, I'm kind of studying ahead a little bit, and I think I probably will take this maybe through through most of June, if not all of June, and and then I'm going to shift the study probably to a Wednesday night because when you get into the tribulation aspects of um, of Revelation, there's a whole lot of um, apocalyptic imagery and a lot of that stuff's hard to interpret and hard to hard to apply It's really hard to apply to the church because I don't believe the church is going to be here during that time period, and so um, we'll probably shift that to a, a Wednesday night study after that but there's all the way through chapter four five and and maybe six we may cover that on Sunday morning. I'm still a little bit undecided, but Revelation chapter 2 and 3, I believe, are the most important chapters in all the book. The, the Bible tells us what Revelation is about. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ from beginning to end. In fact, if you want to talk about what the Bible's about, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ from beginning to end. All of the scriptures point us to the one who is um, the only means of salvation for mankind, um, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you talk about Revelation chapter, there, there's actually an outline in chapter 1, verse 19. He said, I want you to write things that you've seen. The things which are and the things that will be hereafter. And so the things which he had seen was the vision of the Lord Jesus. The things which are are the church age. The, 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 the time when John was living, the time that we're alive. And, uh, and that's what's most important. Um, when you want to talk about the things that are hereafter, what you do with Christ in the church age determines where you will be with Christ um, in the hereafter and the things that will be hereafter. So, um, when, when you look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, this is where we live. And this is where John said that Jesus lives, that he is in the midst of his church. That's the vision that he saw, um, had Jesus standing in the midst of those seven golden candlesticks which represented these seven churches and which represents the church as a whole, that Jesus is in the midst and that he has the messengers of those churches. Um, scripture used the word angels. It literally translated as messenger. Um, it probably is the pastor of these churches that he holds them in his right hand, that place of authority. And he's giving them this word to hand down to um, his church. There, are, um, there were, at the time John wrote this, seven actual churches. Um, there were way more than seven churches, but he um, picked out seven. Um, only one of those churches had another letter written to it. And that was the church at Ephesus, the first church that was mentioned. The book of Ephesians was written to it by the Apostle Paul. But I think these seven churches were chosen um, simply because they they all existed at that time, but they also are representative of what any church can look like at any time and representative of what any Christian can look like at any time. And there also may be a little bit, and I, I'm st- I still I wrestle with this all along. Um, some people have picked out uh, a fellow by the name of Clarence Larkin years ago wrote a book called Dispensational Truth, and he tied the seven churches to seven distinct periods of church history. Um, it makes really good sense to me um, through the third church and maybe the fourth church, but after that it kind of it gets hard for me to follow his reasoning behind that. Um, but there may be some there. There may be some truth to that. I don't, I'm not going to press that. But, um, but, but we, we've talked about Ephesus being the church that lived the right kind of life, but they didn't love well. They had left their first love. They were, they were serving Jesus um, outwardly, externally well, but they had bad motives behind it. Um, they were more legalistic in their living for Christ than they were loving. And, and all of our work, faith works by love. That's what Paul told the book, of, uh, the church in Galatia. Um, that's what matters is faith that is being uh, extended and, and, and revealed to the world um, by our love for them. Um, historically, maybe the, the apostolic church up until the last apostle died, who was John. Um, Smyrna, um, no criticism of that church no criticism at all. Um, living in abject poverty, uh, persecuted to the nth degree, but Jesus said, even though you 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 are materially speaking poor and persecuted, what I see in you is that you are rich, and that you will experience a great um, reward. Um, they historically were were the, there were five million Christians slaughtered simply because of their faith in Christ. Um, between 100 AD um, and 312 AD when Constantine became a Christian and converted the Roman Empire into a state church. Um, Smyrna, I'm sorry, Pergamos, um, they were getting along well. Jesus said they were holding on to the faith, but they were not holding each other accountable. There were people in the church that were, um, that were holding on to or, or behaving in ways and holding on to doctrines that they should not have held on to. And um, the the church there was a tolerant church. They were um, they they were not holding their people accountable. The church had a season of history um, between 312 A.D. and 606, where it became very popular um, to be a Christian, and um, it also made them a very weak church as far as their standards were concerned. Um, Thyatira, um they loved right. They were just the opposite of Ephesus. They had to love going right, but they loved so hard. Um, that they became way too tolerant and way too liberal. So if Ephesus was the legalistic church, um, then, then Thyatira was the liberal church. Dark Ages, 606 to 1500, um, when the Catholic Church became really strong, really powerful, really um, wealthy, um, and began to drift away from that scriptural truth. I believe the Catholic Church began well. Um, but like so many of those that, that, that get very wealthy and very prosperous, um, they begin to drift away from the foundational, fundamental teachings of the Scripture. Uh, today we're going to talk about Sardis. Um, walking and talking, but dead and dying. This is, a little, this is where it becomes a little bit harder for me to see the historical perspective. Reformation was a good thing. Um, the Reformation was getting the church back to the fundamental teachings, especially that one of justification by faith. It, it, uh, it came to its head when Martin Luther nailed his ninety. Um, his 95 theses to the wall of the church there, and um, and, and b- that became the official start of the Protestant Reformation. That's what we are. We are Protestants. We uh, came out of the Catholic Church and returned to the roots of, uh, of our faith, and, and and that was a good thing. But what happened is um, it became a very political movement too, and it became a state-organized um, religion and and then it became there was a war going on literally between the Catholics and and the Protestants and so um, they had a form of life but no real substance behind it. I heard one guy said this is the Walking Dead Church or the Zombie Church. That's what he called it. This is the Zombie Church. Um, I I don't know how much you can weigh into that historical perspective. But um, beginning in Revelation chapter 3, there's just six verses written to this church. And uh, beginning in, in chapter 3 verse 1, the Bible says, Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, I've often wondered this because I grew up in a neighborhood where Sardis Church was right down the road. <laughs> and I have, there's, a, there's actually a Free Will Baptist Church right across the state line in New Fall, Alabama that is Sardis Free Will Baptist Church. And I've often wondered in my life, after I had read these letters to the seven churches, why would anybody name their church Sardis? <laughs> and I kind of feel like my home church may have looked at their founders may have looked at it like, well, we got that dead and dying church down the road, so let's start the next one in line right up the road. Philadelphia became the only other church in the seven letters that had no condemnation towards them. Um, why would anybody name a church Sardis when the Bible says, when Jesus said that that church was dead and dying Sardis was uh, you, you, you can google this stuff and look it up for yourself Sardis was in a very wealthy it was the capital city of the nation of Lydia um, it was still under the Roman government but it, it was a very very wealthy city very well positioned geographically it was hard for people to come against it although it was um, the, the the walls were breached three times. People did come in and raid the city, uh, and the only reason they were able to do that is because the city was very apathetic and indifferent to outside enemies coming in. And so it, it was in a very wealthy place. One of the kings there, I can't call his name. I couldn't pronounce it if I could call it. But um, um he was known as the wealthiest man. Um, in the world and probably might be by those standards still today um, the wealthiest man in the world. It, It was a city known for being full of gold, full of silver, full of jewels, um, a very, very wealthy place. And I, you hear me say this all the time. The church's worst enemy has never been adversity. It has always been prosperity. The same was true for Israel. Their worst enemy was not adversity. It was prosperity. The more prosperous they became, the more indifferent and apathetic and neglectful they became towards the things of God. And I think that's the reason the scripture says so often that it's hard... Um, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, and that warning is there over and over and over again. That we, and it's not that the Lord is opposed to us having wealth; it's that it's so easily for wealth to have us. Um, you can't love God and money. Jesus said um, you can't love both because you'll, you'll end up uh, loving one and hating the other or clinging to one and letting the other slip away. And that's what happens sometimes um, in, this, in th- these wealthy places with these wealthy people and these wealthy churches. And, and, and I think that's what happened in the church there and, um, in Sardis. There was also a temple there. Um, to the god Artemis or to the goddess Artemis and I, I just thought this was interesting um, archaeological digging dug up a Christian church that was right next door to a pagan temple which could have been that temple of Artemis and, um, and so these, the, they were coexisting alongside of each other one, one thing that I dug up in looking at the historical context is that there was a bishop at that church Uh, at the church at Sardis, or a pastor at the church at Sardis, may have even been the pastor that received this letter from John the Apostle. His name was Melito, and it's very clear from his writings that he um, was at the end of the 2nd century, and that, that he was very much into... Uh, being a defender of the Christian faith and and trying to reestablish the Christian faith, so he may very well have taken this letter from John and taken it to heart and done everything that he could to lead this church out of the place where it was at. And I, you know, only heaven knows. Only, only. The other side will tell us whether Sardis heard Jesus' words and repented and came out of that dead and dying place. Um, but but it's hopeful to me that this um, pastor may have uh, taken this letter to heart. The first thing I want to point out to you, Jesus had a very authoritative introduction. Um, he has, in every one of these letters, he has went back to the vision that John had or something that was written about him um, in Revelation chapter 1 and referred to himself along those lines. But this this authoritative introduction is that I have the sevenfold, um, the, the King James translation says seven spirits of God. There are not seven Holy Spirits. Um, but the Spirit of God is manifested in seven different ways. There is a sevenfold manifestation of the Spirit of God, which represents the fullness of the Spirit of God. You can find that in Isaiah chapter eleven, verse two, which is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Jehovah will rest upon Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord—all of those rested on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says to the church at Sardis, I am the one who possesses the fullness of the Spirit of God. I have all of the attributes of the Spirit of God living and dwelling in me, and I have the seven stars in my right hand, that I have the, the, the messengers to these churches in my right hand. Now, this is what I believe Jesus is saying in this introduction. Um, I, I know what I know. I know what I know is true, and I speak what I know is true. Um, Jesus has all of God's spirit. He knows the Father as intimately as he knows the church that calls itself by his name. And, and, and this is what I want to say to you. I'm going to move on from this. And, and this is always true. It ain't just true in these letters to the seven churches. When Jesus speaks, it is from the Father. You see that in all the Gospels. Jesus says over and over, I'm not telling you. The words that I speak to you are not my words, they're the Father's words. And so everything that Jesus speaks comes from the Father and is given to us by the Spirit because the Bible says from the very beginning, uh, even from his mother's womb, that Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God. So everything that, that comes to us, everything that Jesus communicates to us um, through his word, including these letters, but uh, including the Gospels, the Epistles, everything that Jesus has communicated to us comes from the Father, it is by the Spirit, and then it is given to us through His messengers, through His stars, through His angels, through those people that He has called to proclaim His Word. That's true throughout Scripture. Um, When the first five books of Moses was written, that, that Word came from the Father, through the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, to His servant Moses, who wrote it down for us to read. And so that's how God has always spoken into this world uh, that we live in. From the Father, by the Spirit, through His messengers to the church and to uh, the Christians. And I said that just to say this. And this is not to elevate me. If I ain't preaching the Word, you have no responsibility whatsoever to listen to me. And if I'm not preaching the Word, you ought to run me off today as a heretic. My, my My one primary responsibility as a pastor is to, the Apostle Paul told Timothy... Preach the word. And so I said all that about Jesus' introduction just to say this. If you reject a true message from a true messenger, it is a rejection of the fullness of the Godhead. That's how authoritative this is. That if, you, if, if I sent this message to the messenger, that it came from the Father by the Spirit, I breathe that word to my servants and they're giving that word to you. And so if you reject their message, you are rejecting the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that gave that message. Now that's the truth. And you'll find out that Israel was destroyed, Judah was destroyed because they mocked the messengers of God and abused the messengers of God, would not hear would not heed the messengers of God. And so in rejecting those messengers, God said, you didn't reject them, you rejected me. And Jesus said the same thing. If you reject the words that I've given to you, then you reject the Father. But if you receive me, he that has received me receives the Father also. So to receive these words is to receive all of the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus made, I don't, I don't even know whether, you know, I, I wrestled with what, whether, whether to even call him this. But he, some Bible scholars will say there was no commendations to this church. That, there, that, that Jesus could find nothing. And, and every one of the letters that we've read so far, Jesus found something good to say about the churches. Now he doesn't have anything good to say about the last church. We'll talk about that when we get there, Laodicea. But in all the churches that we've been through, the first four churches, there was always something good that he could point out in that church. So, so what I'm calling this is Jesus' sarcastic commendation of the church, if you can even call it a commendation. He said two things. You have a name that you live. And, and, and this is what I think that means. You, you have a name that you live. You have a reputation of being a Christian church. You, you, have a, you have a name on your door. You have a cross on your steeple. Um, you, have a, you, you have a building. You have a service. You, you gather up. You sing. Um, you, 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 you may read the scriptures. You may have events. You may even advertise those activities in your community. You have a name that you live. In other words, they were recognized in the city as being a church that at least named the name of Christ. But the reason I call it a sarcastic commendation is that he said you have a name that you live but then he followed that up with but you're dead. You, you have a reputation of being a church that is alive. But the reality is, is that you're dead. Now I've remembered what Jesus said to the Pharisees um, he said that you are whitewashed sepulchers. All, on the outside, you're all cleaned up. On the outside, you look good. On the outside, you present yourself to the world as somebody who is holy and righteous. But on the inside, you're just full of dead men's bones. And so Jesus looks at this church and says, you've got a reputation for being a church. You've got a building with a cross on a steeple and you have services every week. But what Jesus saw in the church was that they're dead. The other sarcastic comment Uh, commendation that I that I saw is that, but there are a few. And this could this is legitimately a a commendation, but the way Jesus said it shows you how bad this church, how how bad a shape this church is in. You have a few names even in Sardis. And, and, And this is said in a way that this is a miracle in itself. That there is still in this church a remnant of true believers. Now, I, I think this goes without saying, and if you, if you talk to some folks that are, that are in these places, you'll find out how difficult it is. It is hard to be a faithful follower of Christ in a church that is dead. When there's deadness all around you, it doesn't feed your faith well, but it's possible. Jesus said, even in Sardis, Even in this dead and dying church, there are a few who have not defiled themselves. There are a few that are still walking the walk, that are committed to trusting in Christ. And then Jesus makes some some brutal condemnations in this. And this might be some of the harshest that we have seen so far in these letters to the churches. Um, He said that you are dead. Dead. And, and, and went on to say that the things that are still alive there are ready to die. You are dead and you are dying. Now, this isn't is the image that I get that you are a body without a spirit. Y- y'all remember when the, when, when the, in the vision of the valley of dry bones. Um, even, after, even after the prophet spoke to those bones and they came together bone to bone. Sinew was laid upon them. Flesh was laid upon them. The Bible said that that before the Spirit of God breathed upon them, that they had the appearance of a human body, but there was no life in them until the Spirit of This is what I see in this church. They were dead. They were um, they, they they were they were pro they were prostrate on the ground. They were dead. There was no breath in them. And and he went on to say that what little bit is still alive there is ready to die. Now I take that back to those. You have even a few at Sardis that have not defiled their names. And so there's a warning in this where Jesus is saying, you're a dead church and what little bit is still going on there, that where there's still a little bit of life, it is, a, it is about to die. There is a body that is present, but there is no spirit there. There is a form of religion, a form of Christianity going on there, but there's no power involved in it. You're going through the rituals. Israel did the same thing. And Jesus said, stop it. Just stop with your sacred feasts and your solemn assemblies. Just stop with the sacrifices. All of those things that you're doing, you're just doing in pretense. They're, they are ritual without any relationship involved in it. You're going through the motions, um, ignoring the fact that there is no life in this body anymore. It is, it is, it is tradition. It is, it is there is no theological foundation in it. You are just doing what you are programmed, what you have programmed yourself to do. Now, I don't know what happened to this church, but, but, but my premise, my, my, presumption, my presumption is that they were not like the other churches. They were not having to deal with a whole lot of persecution. They were not having to deal with a whole lot of poverty. The people that were a part of this church were very likely because they lived in Sardis, which was known as a city full of gold and wealth, is that they just they were very prosperous to the point that they didn't that they felt like they could just go through the motions and the church became a big social club to them. It just became something that they did once a week. What happened to them? I think this is the this is the way Satan destroys a lot of churches and a lot of Christians. Makes them absolutely worthless to the kingdom is that they begin to neglect the things that concern their salvation. Th- that they, they begin to be indifferent about things that God told us that we ought to be zealous about. Um, and in their, in their neglect and in their indifference, they just became apathetic. And, and it became just a process of going through the motions every week. How many churches and Christians are like that today in our nation. See, because if this applies to a church, it does apply to a Christian. You, you can be a dead and dying Christian in that you have a form but no substance. That you have a body that you're going through the motions that you're, that you're making an appearance but there's nothing real there. There's nothing that has life there. How many churches and how many Christians are just dead and dying in a a, a ritualistic religious exercise but do not truly possess? And I, I use the term Christians loosely. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians. There are a lot of churches who call themselves Christian churches. that have no evidence to back that up other than what they profess with their mouth I could call some churches by name but I'm not going to do that Um, there's one in Waycross that's going through all the motions this morning They've sang, they're probably reading from the Bible. Um, same, the same, the, the, the fellow heading up church, the same one said, you all were following a cult leader. And, and, and I've watched their services online, and it is a very a, a dead, ritualistic exercise that's going on there. And, and I wonder sometimes, are there, is, is, is there anybody there, even at that church? that has a legitimate real faith that is manifested in the fruit that they bear in their life but but, but we need to bring that down we need to bring that down home to us how about us? I mean how about us individually? the apostle Paul said that we ought to examine ourselves he said that you ought to examine yourself and see whether or not you're in the faith now he's writing that to a church and he's, and he's telling every member of that church, you ought to examine yourself and see whether or not what you have is real or whether it's just lip service. Jesus said about the nation of Israel, You draw near to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Dead, dying. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, are, are, are we experiencing a... a, a, a Rich and abundant life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what Jesus said, I can't He said, I'm a good shepherd. I gave my life for the sheep, and I have come that you might have life, and that you might have life more abundantly. And so you, you could not call a a true Christian that has committed his life to Christ dead and dying. But I think we need to ask ourselves, is the life that we're living, is there evidence in our life that Christ is in the midst of it and that we are alive and growing? We use this analogy sometimes when we're defending Um, our, 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 um, our pro-life position. Um, because the, the, for, for, for many years, the abortion movement used that, it's not, it's not alive. It's not a baby. It's not a baby. It's a, it's a clump of cells. It's not a baby. And so that's, that's been, they've kind of lost that side of the debate because of the 4D ultrasounds and stuff. Um, technology has picked up and that, that debate is not used as often anymore but I remembered one of the answers that I one of the questions that we were supposed to ask a long time ago when we were engaged in this dialogue with the abortion rights people um, to ask two questions is it alive? Is it alive? and, and, and if they said well it's It's just a clump of cells. No, is it alive? And one of the one of the fruits of it being alive is is it growing? If it's growing, it's alive. And and so, when you look at your life as a Christian, when you look at your life, listen, I'm being serious this morning because I believe that the plague of the American church today is we got a lot of people who profess to be Christians that do not possess the Spirit of Christ. They're dead. And they, they, there is no evidence. They made a profession of faith with their mouth, but their heart is is not with Christ. There is no fruit of faith being born in their life. Is are you in Christ alive and growing? Is your life in Christ rich? And abundant is his spirit living in you and I can tell you I think when we get up on Sunday mornings and and take ourselves to the house of God and do what we've done this morning we need to ask ourselves the question why am I doing this legitimately why are you doing this because as a Christian I can tell you the reason I'm doing this is because there's a man named Jesus who laid his life down on a cross for sins that he did not commit shed his blood laid down his life in exchange for my life was buried in a borrowed tomb and rose again victorious on the third day that man sitting at the right hand of the father this morning interceding for me and he's coming back again to take me to where he is I believe that with all of my heart I come to the house of God on Sunday morning because of what Jesus has done for me and because I love him more than I love anything else or anybody else in this world and that I want to serve him I want to please him I want to do what is acceptable in his sight including presenting my body to him as a living sacrifice for others to see the work that Christ is doing in me and through me and for me to win the world to himself I'm not coming here just because it's what I'm supposed to do on Sunday morning because it's what my mom and daddy told me to do Um, because um, this is something that I I don't have anything else to do today but come to the house of God. We need to check our motives. Why are you here? Is this just a dead ritualistic exercise for you or are you coming here because you have a living, growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and there's no other place you'd rather be in this world than with His people, worshiping Him, learning of Him, growing in grace and knowledge of Him. We really need to, ha- we had- we need to have that examination. Because Jesus said to this church, you, you're dead. And what little bit is still there is dying. And, and, and in that light, he gave some, some, some very urgent exhortations to this church. Where most of the people are dead and the rest of them are on hospice care. And and the first thing he said is be watchful. And what does that mean? It means wake up. It means means take an honest look. And that's all I'm trying to get you to do this morning. I ain't trying to get anybody to doubt their salvation, to question their salvation. Although I don't think it's wrong to question our salvation. I need to question mine every day. I need need reassurance every day. I need to examine myself every day. We all need to do that. You know, I've heard stories of men that have preached the gospel for 10, 12, 14 years of their life and all of a sudden had an authentic conversion experience. They, they had, I, I remember Brother Billy Hugh Thomas. Y'all remember them old satellite dishes you used to turn by themselves? I mean, you had a, you had a remote control inside that you, you turned it to the station that you want. Brother Billy Hugh, I was over there one day and he's like, let me show you something. And, and he turned it on to a guy that was preaching. I mean, he was a teacher, teacher-preacher. Smoking a cigar while he was preaching with a glass of bourbon in his hand. And, and I, I'm going to tell you something. He's doing a pretty good job teaching. I mean, I was a little bit impressed with, with the wisdom that he was speaking with. And, and Billy, Hugh said one time on there he had all the Playboy bunnies on both sides of him. And I'm like, you kidding me. And he's like, no, nah, I'm serious. And uh, he said, "What do you think about him?" I said, "I don't know what I think about that guy." But then, about five or six years later, Brother Billy Hugh um, he he called me up and he said, "You know that dude that was that was teaching and and preaching and smoking a cigar and drinking his bourbon?" I'm like, "Yeah, I remember him." Said he got saved. I mean, Billy, he said he, he literally came on that program and told the people, listen, I've known the Bible for a long time and I've known what the Bible said, but I didn't know the writer. I didn't know the author. I didn't know the Savior. And the, Billy, he said, he ain't smoking a cigar and drinking bourbon no more. <laughs> so, so listen, it's good for us to examine ourselves. I remember going to the... To the back porch of Brother Isbin and Sister Mamie's house when Brother David Boatwright was sitting on the back porch one day. It, it always tickled me that they tried to hide their smoking from me. I don't care if you smoke, but they put their cigarette out and blow spray stuff in the air and everything else. I snuck around the back porch and scared him. But Brother David wasn't in good shape. His health was failing, and he knew he wasn't. But I climbed up on the back porch and was just having a conversation with him. And I, you know, I said, Brother Dave, we've been praying for you. I pray the Lord touches your body and brings healing to it. And I'm like, I wish there was more that I could do. But I asked him, I'm like, is everything okay between you and the Lord? He said, I don't know. And I said, well, I want you to know. Because the Bible says in First John chapter 5, verse 13, these things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. And so I did with Brother David what I need to do with myself every day. I walked him, I first of all, I walked him through the Romans' road to salvation. Verse by verse. Establishing that he was a sinner, that he could not save himself, that Jesus died on the cross for, for him, that he was buried, that he rose. We went through that whole process again. And so at the end of it, I said, Dave, Brother David, have you walked that road? Have you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, I do every day. And I said, well, let me, let me take a minute and point to some of the fruit that I see in your life. And I began to talk to him about the things that I saw in his life that made me believe that he was a true Christ follower. And, I, and, and, and by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, Brother David found some reassurance of his salvation. I don't think there's anything wrong with us. Going back and checking. Be watchful just means that you need to evaluate your life where you are and see if there's any evidence there that you have what you say that you have. Strengthen the things which remain. The way I look at that is you need to blow on what's dying. You need to take the, the embers that are dying out and fan that flame. Now, I don't know what I struggled a little bit trying to understand what strengthened the things which remain. He said they're about they're ready to die, but you you can blow some you can blow on those dying embers and create a flame again. So what was dying? Maybe their prayer life was beginning to tank. Maybe their maybe their study of God's word. Maybe there was something taking the place of God's word in their worship services or in their personal lives. Maybe they weren't engaging themselves in worship; they were just singing songs. And I think all Jesus, what Jesus says there is those those things that are still right. And can I tell you, even in a ritualistic dead church, uh, when, when you don't need to quit praying, you don't need to quit reading the Bible. You don't need to quit. You don't need to quit singing. You need to. If anything, you need to blow some breath on those things and see if you can fan them into a flame again I think in all of our lives sometimes we get apathetic into things that are important for our spiritual health and well-being prayer and Bible study and church attendance being some of them and sometimes we need to fan those flames again because they're beginning to die out in our life He said to remember, remember what you have received and heard hold on to those things and repent of how you've fallen away from those things the good seed had been sown in this church. It was it was a church that started well. And so he said, those things that you heard, those doctrines that you heard and that you received at one point, that you believed to be true at one point, you, you go back and get a hold of those things again. Go back and hold on to those things uh, again and repent of where you've fallen away. Admit that you have fallen from that. And, and, and that whole business of Repenting is that that in in doctrine and in practice you go back to life in the spirit, and then he gave that and, and he didn't say it in these words, but there's an or else there. He said, if you don't, the judgment is going to come upon you like a thief, and and, and you're, you you won't you won't know when it comes. Now that could be that could be a. An allusion to the rapture of the church, or it could be an allusion to a specific judgment upon that church. If you don't do these things, your destruction is going to come suddenly and without warning. It's going to be too late when that happens. So these are urgent. There's an urgent exhortation there. And, and I, can I tell you this this morning? I don't think we I don't think we mentioned this enough. But Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. That's the last thing he let us know is that I'm coming back and you don't need to be standing here gazing into the heavens waiting on me. You need to get about the business that I've called you to be about. And, and I'm going to tell you something. One day, folks, the trumpet of God's going to sound. There's going to be a bunch of folks trying to run to church. There's going to be a bunch of folks trying to do a lot of things to get right. And it's going to be too late. G- Jesus may come in your life today. Um. T- Harry Reader and Tim Keller, both of them Presbyterian pastors who I think a lot of, who wrote some excellent stuff, who have been friends to Free Will Baptist Ministries and who have ministered at our, our leadership conferences and stuff, both of them went to be with the Lord this week. Um, Tim Keller's was totally unexpected. or I, I'm sorry, Tim Keller's was expected. He'd been battling pancreatic cancer for several years. Uh, Dr. Harry Reader, who whose best friend is, is, is one of his best friends, president of our Bible college in Nashville, um, ran into the back of a dump truck, and, and lost his life instantly. Totally unexpected. One of the largest Presbyterian churches in the United States of America, gone. Listen to me. I'm telling you, Jesus come for any one of us today. I've gotten too many phone calls in my 28 years of ministry when people left this world without any warning whatsoever. I mentioned Brother Billy Hugh Thomas when I when I got to his house at 11 o'clock at night. He was sitting at his bar stool. He's still on the bar stool. He didn't fall off the bar stool. Eating supper, my favorite meal, in fact, pork chops, rice, and tomatoes. <laughs> Billy Hugh always prayed with his hands beside his plate. His hands were laying in his plate, and his head was in, in, in the middle of it, the palms of his hands. A salt and pepper shaker on his right hand, a glass of tea that all the ice had melted on the other. Brother Billy Hugh left this world just like that, just like that. Now here's the here's the consolation. I know where he's at. Jesus called him home just like Brother Billy, you always prayed Jesus called him home. Turned me out like a light switch. He did. But the same thing can happen in our lives, and it can come in the form of judgment. I've, gave, I've given you your last opportunity. I've served you your last notice. I've, I've convicted you and called you for the last time. This is your opportunity. Don't let it pass by. I really believe the night that I got saved in 1993, uh, I really believe if I had rejected Jesus that time, I would not have lived. That'd been my last opportunity. Those are urgent exhortations. You better wake up and get a hold of the things that matter. Hold on to them. And where you've fallen, repent. But then there's some precious consolations given. And I'm not going to get bogged down in them. I'm not. I always think I'm going to be through quick, and I never am. I'm sorry. He he uses this as word. He said, he that overcometh. He that overcometh. What does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us that how we overcome is by faith. John wrote in, in 1 John chapter 5. Who is he that overcomes, what, what is it that overcomes the world? What is it that, that, that makes us overcomers? Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Plus nothing, minus nothing. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who heard what he said, um, who exercised real faith, and that faith has to be manifested in fruit. The, James wrote this in his epistle. If, if, you, if you have faith that does not have any works to show it, it is dead and vain. Real faith will prove itself in your life. There will be a change. Now, I I get it. Change happens differently for us. We don't all change. I had a radical transformation in my life. But if you are alive in Christ and growing in Christ, there will be evidence of your life being a life of faith. But here's what he said. If you're an overcomer, you'll be clothed in white. Um... Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, talks about those people that are around the throne that are, that are clothed in white. It speaks of the purity that the church has because they have washed their robes in the blood of Christ. It's not, we didn't wash our robes in our own works, we washed our robes in His blood. And they're before the throne day and night giving Him praise. Then the other consolation is this I will not blot out His name. I will not blot out, let me read it like it says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Now, let me me say this first. This is meant to be a positive affirmation for those who overcome. Who, Who are those who overcome? If you have faith, I will not blot out your name from the book of life. Now, th- this verse has become a source of controversy. And I, I'm not going to get bogged down right here. Um, but, but the question is asked. Okay, if Jesus has said to these people who overcome, I will not blot out your name out of the book of life, is it also implied that it could be blotted out of the book of life? That leads to all kinds of, questions is there two books is there a book that is written of people who were born of the water and the blood physical birth and their names are all written down in it and and is it it that book of life is there one book that's physical and one book that's spiritual Um, Dr. John Walvoord who I have a lot of respect for I don't always agree with everything but I have a lot of respect for him he interpreted it like this because the blood that Jesus shed is sufficient to cover everybody's sins that ever walked the face of the whole earth that everybody's name is written in the book and that when a person dies without Christ their name is blotted out That's, that's an interesting perspective. I don't know whether he's right or not, to be honest with you, but it is an interesting perspective. I'm, I'm going to share with you a verse in a minute that makes me question that perspective a little bit, though. Book of life: The word is there are two words that John translates life." There's actually more than two, but the two most common words that John translates as life, or that the King James translated John's words as life. Suke, which is breath, that would be the physical life. That would be our bodies die or our bodies come alive. The other is Zoe, which is, which is almost everywhere that John wrote it, a reference to the life that God gives. For instance, John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting Zoe. Life as God gives life. And that is abundant life, that is eternal life, that is spiritual life, that's life. As God has life. The word that John uses in this passage is the book of Zoe. Not the book of Suke. Not that he dies and I'm going to blot his name out. It is Zoe. There are eight references in the New Testament to the book of life. One in Philippians, seven in the book of Revelation. Two of them in the book of Revelation have Lamb's book attached to it. The other five all... All eight of the references in Philippians and all seven in Revelation, all eight of them are referring to those that are redeemed. Revelation chapter, but let, me, let, me, let me back up a minute. Now, here's what John said. He did. We're making some implications, but what John said was, He that has faith, I will not. Blot out his name. But let me show you one verse in Revelation chapter 8. I'm not trying to confuse you in all this. Revelation chapter 17. Um, I almost don't want to read the first part because it doesn't. It, it, we're going to, that'll create questions for you that I don't have time to answer for right now. But but John is seeing the tribulation being played out before his very eyes. And he's talking about. Um, the Antichrist and the false prophet and that last kingdom that comes upon the face of the earth which is a revived Roman Empire. Verse 80 says, The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition and they that dwell upon the earth shall wonder. Who is it that's dwelling upon the earth that are wondering about this beast that has arisen? Those whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is these are unsaved people these are unsaved people but read it again their names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world now I'm going somewhere with this and I want you to see it I don't want to confuse you in it they did not have their names written in the book of life from the very beginning Now, that's a real strong verse for election. It is also a real strong verse for omniscience. Now, would you agree with me? Would you, would you agree with me that God knows everything? Amen? He knows everything. God's never been informed of anything. Never been caught off guard by anything. Never been surprised by anything. So listen to me very carefully. God already knows everybody who will believe and who will persevere in faith until the end. Period. Right? Is God going to be surprised that any of us get to heaven? Mm -hmm. Because He knew who would from the beginning. He knew who would believe. He knew who would trust Christ. He knew who would persevere in their faith unto the end. And so even though even though I, I believe in the possibility of apostasy, I'm quite sure God knows who the apostates are too. Right? Right? So, if God knew that you were gonna you're gonna receive Christ, but ten years down on the road you're going to reject Christ was there any reason for him to write your name in his book to begin with? Revelation chapter 17 verse 18 said those people that are living on earth did not have their names written in the land's book of life from the foundation of the earth now we're looking at a world that's ten thousand years deep in Revelation chapter 17 and and the Bible says those people have never had their names written in the Lamb's book of life never had their name written in in the book of life God knows who they are, and and let me let me say this. And I got, I'm gonna move on, and I'm I'm done. I know this is this is one of those topics that comes up. Brother Jimmy and I have talked about it recently. Some not, we haven't sit down and talked about it, but you do understand God don't need a book. He don't need a book to know who's saved. He's not going to have to search through the book. Let me see if your name's there. There, There's a lot of stuff that's given in Scripture that's given for us so that that we can relate to what's going on more easily. You get it? The Bible says that the Lord is a strong tower. Is He a strong tower? Is the Lord a tower? No. But, But a tower represents His attributes to us, and we can envision that. So when the Bible talks about a book of life, there may be a literal, actual, physical book. But, but can I tell you, if there is, that ain't for his benefit. That's for our benefit. He ain't going to have to check the book to see if we qualify. He knows his children. Would you agree with that? He knows his children. He knows us. He knew me before I was in my mother's womb. He knew everything there was to know about me before he saved me. He knew not only all of my past failures. I couldn't inform him of anything. He knew all my future failures. But there ain't no doubt in my mind that my name is in his book. Let me me just sum, sum it up like this. Whether there's an implication there or not. It, th- this, is a, this is a positive affirmation for people that are overcomers. Your name will not be blotted out. And so whether there's an implication there that somebody's name might be blotted out or, or not. Let me, let me just ask you a simple question. Somebody that has no faith. Or somebody whose faith may be wavering may need to read that implication. That warning is there for a reason. That implication is there for a reason. And, and, and the last thing, listen to me very carefully, I want you to hear what I'm saying. The last thing somebody that's dead and dying needs is assurance of salvation. When, they, when there is no assurance. Do you hear me? people need to read that and have a wake up call there's there's people that need to read this passage of scripture and say wait a minute is my name in the book is is my faith real is it alive, is it growing is there evidence, is there fruit this may be a wake up call for some folks I'm going to tell you the passages of scripture that I read before I was saved they scared me And I needed to be scared. They shook me up because I needed to be shook up. They settled heavy on my heart. A lot of them I didn't understand at the time. But I needed to hear that warning. I didn't need need anybody to come along and say that don't apply to you. Because I felt differently. I needed to feel differently. If you have faith. You are an overcomer and your name will not be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. If you have no evidence for your faith, if your faith is wavering, if you have never made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't need any assurance of salvation. You need a good, solid examination of who you are in light of God's word, by God's spirit. Um I I, I was gonna share with you a spurgeon quote, but I'm not Spurgeon. I, I never knew this contradiction and controversy was there? Remember last week I talked to you about the hen gathering their chickens? I would. But you wouldn't. <laughs> I didn't know there was any controversy over that verse. But probably because of my theological persuasion, but I found out there's a whole bunch of controversy about that verse of scripture. Because people that believe in election believe that if Jesus called you, you come and ain't nothing you can do about it. And, and Jesus plainly said in that text, I would, but you wouldn't. I wanted to save you, but you didn't come for salvation. And I thought, what in the world? And, I, and Spurgeon believed in, in election and the effectual calling. And here's what Spurgeon said. I read his sermon on that, on that verse. And um, Spurgeon's like, I'm just going to preach to you what the text says. It ain't up to me to resolve the conflict that's there. I'm just going to preach to you what the text says. And so when I come across a warning passage in Scripture, I'm just going to preach to you what the text says. I ain't, I ain't got to reconcile it. If, if God said it, I just want to agree with what God said in that context and let because let, you may need to hear it a different way than I heard it. Y'all ever had a verse of Scripture spoke to you personally, individually? At, a, at, a, at just the right time in your life. It may not have spoke to anybody else in the crowd, but it spoke to you. God set his book up to speak to us where we're at. And sometimes we need to hear them warnings, and we need to hear them strong. I'm, he, and then he said, I'm going to confess your name before the Father. Um, Jesus is going to stand up for those who stood for him. Let me, read one, let me read one last passage of Scripture. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord... That they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more godliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth of heirs, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, verse 19 says this The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You now I quote that verse all the time. But you know how Paul prefaced that verse? He said, There's a lot of people saying a lot of confusing things, subverting those who hear it. But it all boils down to this you study yourself. You you get into the word and study it for yourself. But you need to know this, the Lord knows those that are His. And if you belong to Him, your responsibility is to walk away from sin. Not walk into it. He knows us as we truly are. But I think the question is, how well do we truly know ourselves? Because if we're just a Christian in name only, if, we, if you've never been born again, if there's no evidence of a new life, um, are you alive and growing in Christ or are you dead and dying in your sins? He knows and, and where we get saved is when we know what he knows and we come into agreement with him. The same is true about the assurance of our salvation. When, when we know what he said about us, we gain assurance of our salvation and have security in our salvation. Um, honestly, I'm really afraid that the visible church in America has more false professors than true possessors. It just shows in the lack of fruit. It's a faith that doesn't have any evidence. And James says it's dead and vain. So I'm going to ask you three questions and I'm done. And I'm, I'm, I don't need to add any commentary to these questions. I just want to ask you three questions. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation? Have you believed that he did what was necessary to save you by His shedding his own blood, being buried in a burrowed tomb, and rising again on the third day? The second question is this, are you trusting in Christ? Because I don't think, my, my faith is never a past tense faith. My faith is always present tense. Yeah, I trusted Jesus. Yeah, I'm trusting Jesus. Faith is a present possession. I, listen, if you tell me I trusted Jesus one time in my life, well, are you still trusting Him? Because that's important. The Bible tells, Paul said, continue in faith, grounded and settled, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. It ain't, it ain't. Yeah, I ran down an altar one time, and prayed a prayer. That ain't what I'm asking you. That that you might answer that first question. Yeah, but are you still trusting Him? Because maybe what you did the first time was look at the seeds that the sower sowed. Sometimes they fall on good ground. Sometimes, in fact, three out of four times, the seed doesn't fall on ground that brings forth fruit. That ain't real faith. When seed finds good ground, it produces fruit. So. Have you trusted Christ? Are you trusting Christ? And then the last one, I guess this remains to be seen. But will you keep trusting Christ until the end? Now, Jesus asked his disciples one time, when he said some hard things and some people walked away from him and said, we can't receive that. Will you also go away? You remember what his disciples said? Where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Now I know you you might question whether or not we can really answer that question. I'm here to tell you, I'm going to answer you that question and tell you that I have trusted Christ, I am trusting Christ, and I will trust Christ until the very end. Because I don't know anywhere else to go to get what I need. Except Jesus. If you possess what you profess, you can claim all the promises of God in Christ. But if you cannot answer yes to all of those questions, you need to hear and repent now before it's too late. Let's stand together as our musicians come. Lord, I thank you for your word. I Thank you for the patience of these people and hearing your word. I'm always mindful of the fact that there may be somebody sitting in the congregation that needs to be saved and- although we may be conscious of our time here, that eternity, literally every time we meet and every time your word is proclaimed and every time the Spirit of God is moving, eternity may very well hang in the balance for somebody. If eternity is hanging in the balance today, One old preacher, y'all used to hear him pray. Save that one that's closest to hell. I pray you do that this morning. There may be somebody here that's been going through the motions for a long time. I did it for three months. Had everybody in my church thinking that I was. Sold out for Jesus. Sitting in a pew every Sunday and singing in the choir. People were looking at what was going on on the outside and making some assumptions. But I knew what was going on on the inside. And I knew that nothing changed. That nothing changed. I was still fighting the same battles every day and losing some of them. and I knew I had no personal relationship with you just a relationship with the church just appeasing my wife just doing what my mom and daddy raised me up to do and there might be somebody in this church today that's just like that and I pray that you would arrest their attention just like the Holy Spirit and the word of God arrested mine that night take away any false assurance or false security that they might have I pray if they ask themselves anything right now is am I alive and am I growing in my relationship with Christ and if they can't answer that question yes God give them the strength to lay aside every ounce of pride and admit their need for a living growing relationship with Jesus Lord there, there, there might be some folks in this building this morning whose faith is weak wavering they know that they've drifted they may not be dead but there's some things that are dying in their life may they fan the flames fan the embers back into a flame this morning By watching, by strengthening, by remembering, by repenting. I pray you do a work right now. We'll praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name.